Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Keith Johnston. Your co-hosts for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by VP Research Director Mike Prue and VP Principal Analyst Dipanjan Chatterjee to discuss the limits of brand values and how companies should decide when to take a stand on social and political issues. Welcome both. Hi, thank you. Great to be on. Thanks so much for having us. So gentlemen, we're going to talk values today, but this isn't the first time we've talked about values. There's been an ongoing string of research over the last few years, but we're kind of in this moment in time with so much going on that uh, consumers, or it seems so, that consumers expect brands to take a stand on social issues in just about every one of them. In fact, it may even be more important to employees. Uh, so I want to kick it off today by just like, let's let's unravel the moment that we're in and talk about how we got here and do we really mean every social issue? You know, there's often a knee-jerk reaction, right? And we've seen this with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but a lot of companies feel like they are in the bright glare of the spotlight and they feel compelled to say something. You know, just like a lot of people, companies can be uncomfortable with silence. Right. And that's not often the best thing to do. Um, I mean, th this is really a pertinent and a very difficult question uh, in terms of what you choose to speak on and then what you say as a result. Right. And, and companies have to choose this very carefully because the whole issue of values leading to taking a social position is an extremely complicated area. And part of it is because if you truly examine the values that companies profess to have, they are far more generic. They are values like integrity. They are values like collaboration. You know, we will look after our customers. You're not going to be able to dip into the value set of a Fortune 500 companies and come up with ready answers on the positions that they should take for abortion right? The positions that they should take on gender and so on and so forth. Um, so I think this is a topic that companies should attack with great deliberation. They shouldn't immediately rush in um, and really formulate a strategy around it. And we have a lot of research that puts together frameworks that help them do this. Let's be super real for a moment and just acknowledge the fact that brands, they're part of the culture war, whether they want to be or not. And if we look at some of the seismic things that have happened in our culture over the past just couple of years, there was the murder of George Floyd, there was a capital insurrection, and there was the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And, you know, these type of seismic activities put brands on notice and consumers expect increasingly that brands are using their platforms of influence for, for good over greed. And it brings up a really important question, which is what role do companies play in society? What role should they be playing in society? Is it about profit or is it about something more than that? And we go all the way back to years ago when the business roundtable made up of a bunch of famous CEOs said that there is 
more to our stakeholders than than just our shareholders and that we as companies have a responsibility to things like the environment and society but what's happened is that consumers now and keith you just mentioned that increasingly employees who are becoming more activist type employees are holding brands accountable to use their platforms to speak out can we put some data behind what you're saying mike though because i feel like there's always this this notion of like consumers expect brands to do x y and z or employees have growing expectations as well but what what's the data that's underpinning the sentiment Sure. So we saw a 12-point year-over-year increase from 34% to 42% of U.S. online adults who say that companies have a responsibility to participate in debates about current issues. And when we segment that data to just Gen Z on adults, that number is 60%. But the conversation isn't just about what consumers expect. They're just one of the many stakeholders that brands have. It's also about employees. And when we look at the you know, highly sensitive and highly controversial overturning of Roe v. Wade, the pressure for companies and brands to take action wasn't necessarily coming from the consumer base. It was coming from companies' own employee base. And ultimately, coming back to the original question on values and when companies should or should not take a stand, part of the equation and the calculus has to be about protecting employees and ensuring the safety and the reliability and, and the performance of, of the employee base of, of companies as well. Is that similar to what consumers expect? Meaning in that specific example, employees expect action, external statements, political action, activism by their firm, or that leadership is doing what they should be doing to take care of their employees and having internal statements? And is there a bifurcation of what action means here? That is such an important question, Jen, because ultimately this is about action over words. This is not about performative virtue signaling. And there's a giant question on where is the line today between a company taking meaningful actions versus virtual virtue signaling and i would argue that that line is moving moving out you know we're seeing sort of a, a retribution or a backlash in companies making vacuous public stances and being labeled as woke businesses or having woke ceos uh, and so there is a fine line and so you know as forrester we advise our clients and, and, and brands to ensure that when they're considering whether or not to take a stand, to consider their response, to understand the situation that they're in, and to know the risks. And the risks ultimately are, are threefold. Number one is that, sure, your brand can take a stand, but know that you will alienate a segment of your audience. Second is you can abstain, you can remain neutral, but that also increasingly is signaling something and will come with potential backlash. And there's plenty of examples of that. Coca-Cola is one of them that remain neutral on the Georgia voting bill. And because they're Atlanta based, 
They were getting a lot of public pressure to speak out, and they eventually did. It was the same thing with Delta Airlines uh, in that instance. But then the risk to signaling a stance can also, if you do not have the credibility as a brand and the past actions to back it up, you will be seen as performative. And we've seen plenty of examples of, of that risk and the backlash that, that you're going to achieve as a brand. So in some ways, uh, you know, it is a little bit of a, a no-win situation in the sense that there is risk for any one of the possibilities for a brand to, uh, to, to move forward on. Could you argue that the risk is much more intense when employees speak out about their own brand who they work for versus the risk that comp companies or brands have with their consumers choosing not to buy their services or products anymore? What I would say to that is employees are the closest to knowing and understanding what a brand says out in the marketplace to what a brand actually does and how that brand behaves. So they are, and we see this happen many times and, and increasingly, employees are calling out their employers publicly when there is that disconnect. Yeah, Dupongin, shed a little bit more light on this because you know I find this that there's a little bit of tension at this point because you have a very different relationship with your brand being an employee of that company versus the relationship as a consumer you have with a particular brand. Absolutely, absolutely. You couldn't be more right about that. You know, there's a lot of conversation about consumer activism. There really isn't as much about employee activism. And I do believe that the employees are perhaps more potent forces of change today. If you think about the relationship that an employee has with an employer, let's call it a brand, that is fundamentally different from the relationship a consumer has with most brands and products that they consume. Right? The employment relationship is a very meaningful relationship because it's all intertangled with identity. Here's a simple way of saying it, right? If you go to a cocktail party, one of the first three questions you will be asked is, hey, where do you work? And sometimes you might feel really proud about telling them where you work. And if you work for certain other companies, you might want to be a little bit hushed about it, right? Your relationship with your employer is very, very significant. The other aspect, that, which is what Mike described, is known as asymmetrical information. Consumers have a little bit of information about the brand. Employees have a ton. So if in any way you are inauthentic, if you make promises you don't live up to, they will know right away, right? Then add to this mix the idea of a tight labor market. You know, things we've called sort of the great resignation and so on and so forth, okay? When it's so difficult to attract and retain talent, and then your employees are demanding so much more of you, they become one of the stakeholders that are of critical importance. So I think, you know, in addition to all this conversation we are having about consumer activism and the power of the consumer to force change, we really have to start talking much more about the role of the employee. 
So, Japanjin, let's say that the economy keeps looking a little awkward at best and um, some jobs continue to be lost. Um, does that does that challenge, does that need to be so philosophically aligned with your employee? Uh, does that change? There will be cyclicality in the business. The labor market is going to you know, expand and contract over time. But I think fundamentally there has been a shift in the expectations that employees have of employers, right? That the way, um, you know, the way we think about significant changes and sort of how we view gender, how we view racial equity, those views aren't going to change because the labor market, you know, expands a little bit, right? So the, those changes are incontrovertible. So I think you will see small changes in leverage and bargaining power uh, based on where the economy is. But we fundamentally arrived at a completely different plateau in terms of the employee and the employer relationship. I will add, Keith, on the note about the economy, certainly it's putting more pressure on companies and especially CMOs to, to double down on growth. You know, growth has always been the main objective for, for marketing, uh, but at the same time, during economic downturns and uncertainty, there is uh, a finer point that, that's put on it. And we've already seen signals in the marketplace, Procter & Gamble, they changed their marketing strategy motto and, and basically flip-flopped uh, two sentences. It used to be a force for good, a force for growth. And they flipped it to be a force for growth and then a force for good. So they're leading with growth and they're basically signaling that, hey, this is what we're about as a company first and foremost. We're not abandoning our values by any means, uh, but at the end of the day, our job as a company is to ensure that we are growing. And that's okay, right? We've seen companies just take a stand on where their line is for values. We've seen Netflix say, like, if you don't like working here, then don't, uh, essentially. So that's okay, right? I mean, that's still being true to yourself as a brand. That is what it's ultimately about, that every company is going to have a certain set of values. And it's fine if those values evolve over the course of time. But what we're really talking about is a company that is staying true to its values and living its values, whatever they are, and ensuring that the employee base knows and understands and is signing up for what those values are behind that company. And the filter to really come back to the initial question of, of when and how should companies take a stand is, does the issue intersect with your company values? And if it does, then that triggers the point at which a company has to determine how it's going to respond. And Jen, to your earlier point, a response doesn't mean it has to be a public statement. A response can, and likely more often than not, should be about making meaningful change. But I will also say that we're living in a time and a moment where all issues have become political or politicized issues. Even the most innocuous things. Not too long ago, Cracker Barrel, they announced a plant-based breakfast sausage on their menu. And wow, the amount of backlash that they received with threats of boycotts because suddenly they became a quote, 
woke brand, a woke company, simply by offering a vegetarian-based option on their menu, you can see the level of divisiveness and sort of the triggering that is happening amongst the consumer base. I just want to give you a sense of how complicated these things can be for companies, right? Um, I just had a conversation with one of the uh, senior executives of one of the world's largest consumer product companies. And he was telling me about how, uh, you know, the, the positioning from the CMO's office is all around sort of purpose and kind of progressive agendas and so on and so forth. But they also have manufacturing plants, right? And down in the plants, the sentiment around things like climate change and social justice is very, very different, right? Um, and they're not what you would generally think of as progressive. So the company has to manage its workforce in the factories as well. And they have to manage it with kids' gloves because there is the specter of unionization looming over the company, right? And and they know what's happened at Starbucks and they know what's happened at Apple and they don't want unions in there. The workforce in the factories are getting riled up um, because they don't like what they're seeing around social justice issues. So it becomes a very complicated decision for senior management for the C-suite because now you have sort of multiple interests and agendas within the company that you've got to manage. So that's why you found a lot of these companies that have come out and made these grand declarations really haven't been able to live up to them because the complexity of delivering on those promises is is really far in excess of kind of crafting a nifty, eloquent message to get that across. Let's talk more about this complexity because that's where I, I find some really uh, interesting storylines building in, in this research is that the views of the front office versus the back office versus the front line, um, just the, the array of issues that we're talking about, which you can't, we can't say that all issue is treated equal, you know, your position on war on Ukraine um, versus, you know, racial and gender equality versus, you know, human rights. Like these are not all created equal. And we're talking about different points of views and different values. Is there an equation that any company can use to get to the most, the best possible scenario for themselves on where to take a stand? Is it possible? We've looked at a couple of things. So first of all, we surveyed consumers around a range of issues and asked them amongst those issues, which ones would they expect or even demand that brands use their platforms to take a stand on? And overwhelmingly, the top issue by far was around the environment, climate change. And when we index that on just Gen Z, it was off the charts. So there are issues that, let's say, are a little bit safer for, for brands to, to weigh in. Um, but in direct response to your question, Keith, the equation has a little something to do with proximity, meaning how close is that brand to the given situation? We talked about it in terms of the intersection with the brand's value set. That's just one part of the equation. 
But the other part has to do with things like physical proximity. So I gave the example of Coca-Cola and Delta earlier. Their headquarters are based in Georgia. So by nature, that kind of puts them in closer to the situation. There is employee proximity. So you mentioned the war in Ukraine. Does the company have offices in Russia or in Ukraine? That, again, brings them in closer proximity to that situation. So as a CMO or a CEO, and I'm evaluating the risk and the opportunity when a situation comes up, proximity has to be essentially the common denominator within the equation on whether or not to, to take action on this. I want to go back to something Dipanjan had mentioned, because I think it's fair to say that many companies have sort of generic values, or at least a subset of them are, are generic in nature. Are we also seeing that leaders are taking a closer, more specific look at how they're defining their brand values so that they can be more specific and targeting, you know, which issues they are going to be taking a stand on. Is that also something that's happening or is that not a reality right now? So let me uh, share with you some fascinating research done by MIT at the Sloan School of Management. Um, so they looked at 700 large companies, right? Not a trivial number of companies, 700. Over 80% of these companies have published values in some form, mission statement, et cetera. The most common number of values that they profess are five. Let me tell you what these top five are. Number one, integrity. 65% of these companies have integrity in their top values. Number two, collaboration. Number three, customer. And then it drops off, respect and innovation. So integrity, collaboration, customer, respect, innovation. Did you hear abortion? Did you hear racial justice? Did you hear climate? No. This is what makes it so difficult. So that's the first part of it. Here's the second part. Here's the kicker in, in, in the research that they did. The analysis shows that there is zero correlation between the company's stated values and the employee's assessment of whether the company demonstrates the value, right? So it says the values only live on paper. So this is why it's so complex for a company to say, hey, something happened in the social political sphere. I may think I have a guidebook or a playbook I can go back to, and I can turn to page 53 and it tells me how to address it, but there ain't no such book, right? So how do you address this problem? It's easy for some companies like Ben & Jerry's, like Patagonia, right? Because it's instilled in their DNA, right? The founders have said that this company will stand for something. For all the others, it's a process of evolution and it's trial and error and it's messy which is why you see so many missteps, right? And, and it's just a growing process. And it's something that companies um, will have to evolve into. And Jen, what you bring up is the notion that companies should 
be more specific about their value statement and their mission statements because not every brand should be speaking out about every issue. It just is not scalable and it doesn't make sense. And DePongent said it best. It's what do you as a company stand for? And so if we look at a company like Patagonia, which is an overused example, it's used for a reason because they unequivocally are focused on protecting the environment. That is their core stance. And you look at a company like Tom's Shoes, disclaimer, they're a Forrester client. Their value statement, their mission statement is to improve lives and focus a third of their profits on doing good for grassroots efforts. And then take a brand like Hobby Lobby. They're also very specific that they exist as a brand to honor the Lord and their business decisions are made based on biblical principles. So there are lines of specificity wherever the, the brand ends up in terms of the spectrum of where they believe that they can be doing good for society. And there are no easy answers to this, but there is a framework, right? If you look at our research, we've written about something called a 4C framework, and it gives brands a way to think through this, right? So what are the four C's? The first C is the company itself, right? You need to take a look inside and make sure that an organization, you adhere to certain principles of fairness, of equality, things that we commonly think of as D, and I, et cetera, right? Uh, uh, is your organization and your operational processes in tune with those notions of fairness and equality. So that's the first piece. And then this is sort of unfolding layers around it. The second piece is the customer. Think of your customer, right? Are you continuing to be relevant to them based on the space they occupy in terms of where their social thinking is? If your customers have evolved in how they think about gender, then you are best suited to follow them on that path. Think about a brand like Target and the work it's done with really stripping out every vestige of gender from the products they sell for kids. You know, there used to be a time when there was shelf lining that was pink and blue to separate boys and girls products, right? That's gone. Products like bedding and toys used to be gender specified. That's gone, right? So as a brand, you say, hey, how do, what's the worldview that my customers have? And do I represent that? That's the second C. The third C is the community that you exist in. And do you have a responsibility towards that community? It's also self-serving, right? None of, do not think of any of this as some sort of an altruistic measure. Think about companies like Walmart that depend on their communities to be a source of labor, to be a source of resources for that organization, right? So what you put into the community could very well come back to you. That's the third C. So company, customer, community. The fourth C is critical, and it's not another layer but it's a thread that runs through every layer. And that's your core competence, okay? You can be most effective 
when you focus on what you do best and you take that strength and you play to your strength in whichever social area you want to move in. So as a company, the way you decide where you can have the greatest impact is by understanding what you do best because no one else can do that as well as you. And then you take that core competence and you apply it. I like that. And it's a great place to start because I think what we need our listeners to know is that um, not every brand can be perfect. It's just too complex these days. It used to be a whole lot easier to put your values on a poster in the hallway and be done with it. Now there's social media channels. The employees seem to have a whole lot more power than they used to. So um, I just want to be clear, like this framework is meant to get us in the best place because inevitably something's going to go wrong. A bad decision will happen, right? Uh, and if that's the case, then how do you respond to that to make sure that you do stay authentic? Brands do screw up. You're absolutely right, Keith. And there's been plenty of examples of that. And it is, and it sounds simple, and of course it's complicated, but ultimately at the end of the day, if the brand messes up, first and foremost, it is acknowledging it and acknowledging it in a timely manner. Uh, we also suggest, and this comes from additional research we've done on the impact of cancel culture on brands is to also weed out the noise uh, that there are, you know, certain s situations, Cracker Barrel is a great example. Uh, Disney, potentially a, a good example of what happened in Florida, where there's going to be a lot of chatter and backlash and, and boycott threats on, on social media. But our own research shows us very similar to how there is a smaller amount of values-based consumers in comparison to those consumers that say or indicate that they'll take action on their values. It works the same way for cancel culture, that it's easy to tweet out that you're going to boycott a brand. But at the end of the day, if that brand is heavily embedded in your life, like same-day delivery from Amazon Prime, you're probably not going to follow through with that boycott threat. And that's exactly what our research shows. So the CEOs are in quite a bind because um, there's a call for growth because we have the economic conditions. Um, none of these challenges that were probably illuminated more so in the pandemic uh, than they might have had been in such a rapid rate. Uh, so how do we or how should CEOs uh, be more proactive rather than reactive? Are there some signals that they and their teams should be taking in to get ahead of these challenges? Is that even possible? It is, and it comes down to scenario planning. And uh, you know, in your own question lies the answer: is how do you be proactive about it versus reactive? Uh, and you know, where brands have faltered is when they've been caught off guard. We've seen now the past two to three years, uh, you know, we are amidst this divisive culture war. We are amidst a time when brands have uh, really uh, tackled the once third rail of, of politics or politicized issues, and they have been speaking out more. Uh, and so this is moving more from a, 
you know, defensive strategy of what should I do when something arises to being planful about here is how we would respond to different scenarios should they arise. Now, the one thing that I would add to this is we talked earlier about three risks that brands would face depending upon which adventure they choose to, to go down. Let me add a fourth risk that is emerging, and it actually sets up a prediction that we have for, for 2023. And this is now the risk of legislative political retribution that is emerging. So, you know, you talk about consumer backlash, you talk about employee back, backlash. Well, now there's, there's actually potential legislative backlash. There are things that are cropping up, things like anti-ESG legislation that's being proposed. Uh, you know, we see some new uh, political ad regulations in the EU that could uh, come up in 2024 that could affect brands' marketing messages potentially. And so given the fact that companies are going to have to be laser focused on growth in 2023 because of the volatility in the economy, they're going to have to eliminate as much noise as they possibly can. Our prediction is that brands will retreat from public stances on political issues. Now, I want to be clear. What I'm saying is public stances on political issues. We do not believe and we would not suggest that brands abandon their values and that brands stop taking meaningful actions on their values. Uh, but this gets into the line that we talked about between virtue signaling and taking those meaningful actions. Make no mistake, CEOs have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder value. Where we do make a mistake, however, is we do not interpret shareholder value correctly. What that statement does not mean is that it benefits a CEO to generate short-term growth, short-term profitability. What it does mean is you have to grow a company that is viable in the long term, that is able to attract and retain the employees you need to grow your business, to be able to attract and retain the customers you need to be profitable. And in order to be able to do all of that, you have to understand the society that you live in. In some sense, and I don't mean to be too philosophical about it, but what we buy is a function of who we are and the society we live in. If as a company, you don't understand that and you don't fit into that bigger picture, then you go nowhere, right? So a successful CEO who maximizes shareholder value maximizes the long-term viability of the brand. And a CEO like that has to have their ears and eyes open to what's happening in the world around them and build a brand that is suitable to that world. I like that advice. I mean, constantly understanding the now to get to the long game. That's uh, good advice. Okay, gentlemen, well, more on this. Um, this is research that I know that will continue to be ongoing. Thank you so much for your points of view and your good research. Thank you, Dipanjan. Thank you, Mike. Keith, Jen, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. As always, it was a blast. 
If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.